to work our way through Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. And one of the things that perhaps we have been noting is this whole issue of the haves and the have-nots. It's really been going on pretty much since chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. We are going to begin chapter 12 today. But there has been, really from the very beginning of the book, Paul's condemnation or his um, rebuke, sometimes his fierce rebuke of this social stratification that has permeated the Corinthian church. They have divided themselves really into the haves and the have-nots. At the very beginning, there were folks who were saying, well, we have wisdom. In fact, we have a little bit more wisdom than you do. Now, our wisdom is exemplified in the fact that we follow after Paul. I know you follow after Peter, and he's good, but we have a little bit more than you have-nots who are just following after Peter. And then some of you are saying, well, we have because we're, we're following after Apollos and after all, he was really our first pastor here and you have nots or following after. Paul's a good guy, but he's no Apollos. And then of course, the most morally superior, we're saying, yeah, well, we follow after Christ. We're the haves and all of you, Peter, Paul, Apollos folks, really? Jesus is the trump card. We got you beat. And so Paul, of course, comes to them and challenges them on on this issue. And then you have those who are claiming that we have moral freedom to live however we want. And that we are set free from any moral restraint. And you have nots are restricted by your failure to understand the liberty that we have in Christ. And of course, then others would come through and say, no, 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 you're really the have-nots. We're the haves, and we live by a strict moral code. In fact, we're so moral that we're actually divorcing our wives. That's how strict we are. Paul, of course, sets them straight and explains that the gospel is the answer to that. And then, of course, you have people in their religious liberty saying, yeah, well, we, the haves, have such liberty that in the world we can participate in, even in pagan cultures, and you know what? All of the have-nots who can't put up with it, tough for you guys. And then last week, of course, we saw the haves and the have-nots in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, The haves were those who were wealthy, and they tended to celebrate and feast in kind of the upper-class area of the house, whereas the have-nots would be served probably an inferior meal in the courtyard. And Paul, of course, comes to them and says, I do not commend you. I do not praise you for this. This issue of the haves and the have-nots dominates the letter. It is an attitude that produced um, disunity within the church. And now 
what we've been studying really since chapter 11, is that this social stratification, this idea of the haves and the have-nots, has now infected their worship. It wasn't just how they treated one another or how they lived outside of the church building, but now this social stratification is actually infecting how they worship. This issue, as I mentioned, was fully realized in the way they took the Lord's Supper. The result of this attitude, this adopting of Roman hierarchy, resulted in the disunity of the church and, more importantly, the dishonoring of Christ. And this is what Paul is, go- is addressing. And so, so, just by way of preview, Paul is going to continue in chapter 12 addressing this area, but now he's going to be dealing with spiritual social stratification. They have um, basically classified themselves um, and value was being conferred on people in the church based on those who displayed greater giftings, greater spiritual gifts, greater talents, better performance, more charisma, better achievement. Those with more impressive gifts were exalted. They were the haves, and they were labeled as more spiritual and undervaluing the, quote, have-nots, those with the less impressive gifts. What we will look at very clearly today is what does it mean to be a spiritual person? What does it mean to be spiritual? You've heard people say, well, you know, I'm not really religious, I'm spiritual. I'm not sure what that means, quite honestly, and nobody's really been able to explain that to me, at least not to me satisfactorily. But today for believers, if you're here today, What is a spiritual person? Who is a spiritual person? What does it mean to be spiritual? I hope to address that answer, that question today. And so just as there is no room for this stratification when we partake of the Lord's table, so also in the area of spiritual giftedness, there is no room for this hierarchy, this layering, this this classification. After all, the question that Paul asks rhetorically in uh, in one of his letters is, what do you have that has not been given to you? And that's a really good question for us today. What do you have that has not been given to you? So with that, let's go ahead, follow along with me. I'm going to read chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, and then we will... Uh, look into this really, really intriguing passage of text. Listen to the word of the living God. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. 
and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one and same Spirit who apportions to each one individually just as he wills. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And so we begin this, I've just kind of made this broad section, I've just titled it, Jesus is Lord. And Paul begins with this now concerning spiritual, literally it is now concerning spirituals. My translation ended up being now concerning spiritual ones. I kind of departed from the majority who would translate that the spiritual gifts. And the reason I did is because Paul has a very distinct word for spiritual gifts that he uses later on in this text. And so I think he's speaking of something else. And it could be spiritual things, it could be spiritual ones or spiritual persons. I think it's spiritual ones. So I'm just going to go with that. I'm not going to get into the ditch on how I arrived at that. But um, now concerning spiritual ones, spiritual people, Paul is now beginning a new topic. It is a topic that the Corinthians had asked about. We go back to chapter 7, verse 1, and, um, and we see that Paul had received a letter from Corinth, from Chloe's people, and they were asking him about various questions. And... In that, Paul is now addressing the questions, and now he gets to the point of, what about spiritual things? Now concerning these spiritual things, I'm about to address them. And Sawyer, are we up to, are you with me here? Keep going. Thank you. Paul, so Paul is beginning a new topic. It's one that the Corinthians had asked him about. And he says, I'm, I'm doing this. I want to talk to you about things. I don't want you to be uninformed. Some of the issues I'm talking about, I think you're, you're misunderstanding them. I don't want you to be uninformed. So Paul is now going to um, present an accurate understanding of this topic. And he then, he begins with their pagan past. You know. I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. They're pagan past. In the past, you Corinthians were led astray to mute idols. I do want to just emphasize this point just because of the numerous writings I read it, that I think misunderstood, just misunderstood this a little bit. 
They were not led astray by mute idols. They were led astray to mute idols. These lifeless idols, we don't know who actually led them or what led them to these these mute idols, but this idea that somebody led you to these lifeless idols. Lifeless, that is, they are unable to come to your aid. They have mouths, but they do not talk, and they have ears, but they do not hear. They have eyes, but they cannot see. These are lifeless, unhelpful idols. It's kind of like today, you have people say, well, I'm just going to pray to the universe. Lifeless. I don't know what the universe can do to help you. It may make you feel a little bit better. But the bottom line is, is the universe is not going to somehow come to your aid. You are led to these mute idols, marched away to mute, lifeless idols. Isaiah has much to say about this, although the Bible in its entirety has much to say about this, but Isaiah is classic because in a very sarcastic and mocking way, he says, so a man goes and, and gets a piece of wood and he cuts it in half. And half of it he takes and he carves ears in it and a mouth and he makes it into a shape and he carves ears that can't hear and he carves eyes that can't see and a mouth that can't speak and then he actually has to make a little base for it so it doesn't topple over. And you bow down and you to it and you say, my God. The other half of the wood you throw in the fire to keep yourself warm. Lifeless, mute idols who cannot come to your aid. Remember your past. You, this is what you came from. You were marched away to, to a destination. The destination was lifeless idols who could do nothing for you. And so in their supposed wisdom, they were led to that which is foolish. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And now he brings them into their spirit-led present. They were living in their pagan past, and now they are are moving. Paul brings them and speaks of their spirit-led presence. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You were led... One who is being led by the Spirit cannot say that Jesus is accursed. Some of the questions that actually get made um, are, is, was this actually happening? I'm not sure what happened to that slide, but... Was this actually happening? Were people actually saying Jesus is accursed? Well... There is some evidence that in the synagogues these things were, be say, were actually being said and perhaps that is the background. But he, let me broaden that. I'm not certain if actually people were actually saying Jesus is accursed. Perhaps there is some evidence of that. But I'll step back and broaden this idea and affirm that the Holy Spirit will never 
lead a person to deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will never lead one to do anything that does not magnify Christ. You cannot sin and say, yeah, the Holy Spirit told me it was okay. The Holy Spirit will never, never lead you to curse Christ in such a way. We And perhaps the, 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 the notable or common example is somebody says, well, I left my spouse and, you know, I think God thinks it's okay. God said it's okay for me to leave my spouse and take up with somebody else. No. The Holy Spirit would never do that. Or people will take Scripture and say, well, it really means that I can do such and such. No. The Spirit of God will never lead a person to dishonor Christ. You may dishonor Christ. Just don't blame it on the Holy Spirit. It wasn't God leading you to deny God. It wasn't the Holy Spirit causing you to blaspheme His name. He will never do such. In your spirit-led presence, he will never, ever lead you to curse the name of Christ. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. I asked the question earlier, who's the spiritual one? What does it mean to be spiritual? Well, here's a big part of our answer. The spiritual one is the one who is led by the Spirit to confess that Jesus is Lord. This confession is a confession that is made by every believer and can only be made under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And this is more than an off-the-cuff, insincere statement. It is the one who is saying or affirming that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he is. This is a statement that affirms the majesty of Christ as the one who died for our sins, was buried, raised to life, ascended to his rightful throne as king of kings, glorious above all else. It is an expression of one who submits themselves to Christ as the ultimate king. Nobody can say that except by the Holy Spirit. Can somebody say those three words, Jesus is Lord, and not mean it? Yes. I don't think that's what Paul's dealing with here. The only one who can affirm Jesus is Lord can only do so by the working of the Holy Spirit. If you are here today and you believe Jesus is Lord, the only way that happened was the Holy Spirit gave you the ability to do that. He convicted you of your sins, called you to repentance, changed your heart, and gave you the ability to say, Jesus is Lord. He is the one who said he said he is. He has died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. He is the reigning King of kings, and he's coming again. And I bow in submission before him only by the Holy Spirit. You can't do it on your own. To understand spiritual things, folks, we need to be spiritual people. And the making of spiritual people is only accomplished by the Holy Spirit. So, 
Paul is introducing, I want to talk to you about spiritual ones. Who's the spiritual one? The one who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, that is evidence that the Holy Spirit is dwelling in their lives, that they have the Spirit. Why? Because they have confessed that Jesus is Lord. So here, just a quick summary. We have kind of a before and after picture. Before, you were led to mute idols. Now, you are led to Christ. Before, you were led to mute idols by who knows what individual. But now, you are led to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is no lifeless idol. He is the risen Lord, alive and well, reigning from heaven over the affairs of men. So, the question, who are the spiritual ones? The ones who demonstrate that they have the Spirit by saying that Jesus is Lord. Now, Paul goes on, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. As we get to this section, let me just introduce this idea of spiritual gifts. Because now Paul, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. There are a diversity of spiritual gifts. In other words, all who confess Jesus is Lord, the spiritual person, I just mentioned the spiritual person is one, the fact that they say that Jesus is Lord is evidence that the Spirit is directing their lives. But that's not the only way the Spirit manifests himself in the lives of believers. He does so through providing them a variety of spiritual gifts. There are distinctions then among spiritual people manifested by differing gifts. We are all one in Christ. We all have the same spirit, but that spirit has also differentiated us. And one of the ways he has differentiated us is by the gifts that he has given to us. Verse 7, I would consider kind of a thesis statement, and I will come back to it, but verse 7 goes like this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Note this. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The spiritual people all say Jesus is Lord. But each of those who claim that Jesus is Lord are given distinct and differing gifts by that same Spirit. I want to make sure that we understand the emphasis here is not on the diversity of gifts, but on the Spirit who gives them. Spiritual gifts are given to you to benefit the church. To each one is given a gift for the common good. Whatever gifting you may have, and we'll talk about this a little bit, whatever that may be, it is not for you. To misquote, I think a 
a well-stated quote or use it to my own application. The gifts of the Spirit came to you because they were going somewhere else. You were gifted for the good of the church. To build up the body, to strengthen the body. A, a great example, I love this, in, in Romans chapter 1, Paul writes this in his kind of his introduction, his desire to go to Rome. And he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. I want to come see you to strengthen you, to build you up. To strengthen you. That is, and then he like this, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith, both yours and mine. I think he realizes that they have some spiritual gifts that they will impart to him and he will be strengthened and built up. And so Paul's like, well, I can't wait to get there. We've got some gift giving to do for one another. I got stuff for you, you got stuff for me, I'm excited. So spiritual gifts are given to you to benefit the church. So just a quick word about gifts, spiritual gifts. I want us to understand this term. They are grace gifts. The word literally is charismata. And for some of you who kind of been around church for a while, may have heard that term, but I want you to note that the very root of that word is the word charis. And charis is grace. Undeserved, unmerited favor. At the very root of this is that these gifts are unmerited and they are undeserved. But God, in His sovereign will, gave something to you by his grace, not because of any merit of your own, that you might give away to his church. Spiritual gifts are not a badge of spirituality. They are a mark of grace. It should humble us. They are an indicator of God's generosity. Here's the thing. God, this is amazing, God accomplishes his purpose through his people. And then he actually gives the gifts to his people to accomplish the purposes that he wants done. God accomplishes his purpose through his people who warrant no special recognition. And this is what Paul's getting at. It's like you guys are exalting certain things and the more spectacular gifts you are exalting. But I want you to know this, that these Gifts are by God's grace, not by your merit. And so to have this group of haves and have-nots, we're the haves because we got these really spectacular things and you're kind of the okay have-nots or have-some. But you're not a have. Not like us. You got these other things and they're okay. It's not like you're like going to burn or anything. You're not like at our level. Paul's saying, listen, all of these came by God's generosity. God is a gift-giving God. And he has his purpose that he is going to accomplish through his church. And he has gifted his people to carry that out so that his purposes are accomplished. So think about that. There is a, as the church on Randall Place, 
continues to exist, that God has a, has purposes for this little congregation here in this little town in central Arizona, and he has gifted you to bring about that purpose. We have a high calling. Now Paul goes on, he says, now listen, I just want you to understand, there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. There are a variety of gifts. These are likely very supernatural abilities, extraordinary endowments by which the Holy Spirit confers upon individuals within the church. They are for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. We see gift lists, lists of gift, gifts in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. They might be related to natural abilities, but they are divinely given to bring unity to the body. Let me give you a, a personal example. I, my, my goal here is not to um, make much of anything about me, but to make, make much of God and his mercy. You may not know this, when I get up here every week and and share God's word, I would say it is a miracle, a supernatural ability for me to get up here every week. I say that not because of, again, any merit. I was a, an extremely fearful speaker, utterly petrified, visibly petrified to stand in front of a group of people and say anything. Literally, there were times, I mean, I would be visibly shaking, embarrassingly shaking in front of a group of people if I had to speak. And then, of course, that weighs on you. The next time you have to speak, it's like, oh my goodness, I made such an idiot of myself the last... And you could tell, you could look on people's faces. And they, I mean, literally petrified. I had a preaching class at Grand Canyon College. It wasn't even a university then. And I was scared to death. I'm like going, oh my goodness. I'm going to get up there and shake and just, Lord, do something. Do I don't know what, but do something. And I got up there and I did not shake. I was still petrified. I don't know if it was a great sermon or not. But I walked away from there going, that was an outright miracle from God. Every week, I'm much more comfortable speaking in front of people. But I will tell you this, it is an utter miracle of God that a guy who is utterly afraid to speak in front of a group of people can do so and is now somewhat comfortable in that role. This is God's gift. It is by his grace. It is by his mercy. I didn't 
take a class on how to be a more confident. I didn't go to the Toastmasters or anything like that. As good as those groups may be, I did not go there. God somehow stopped my visible, evident to all that I was petrified to be in front of them. God, a variety of gifts. I pray that the gift to be able to speak plainly God's word in a way that is not distracting is a gift of the Spirit. A variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. Everybody probably has a, is gifted. I don't have more of the Holy Spirit. I don't have a better Holy Spirit. Nor do you. It is the same Spirit who does these things. By his grace. And there are a variety of services. There are a variety of service. There are many ways to serve, and all are necessary. But not all are outwardly spectacular. Spiritual gifts are given for service. Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And they are meant to build up. 1 Peter 4.10 would imply that your gift is to serve somebody else. Serving gifts may not all be to serve one another. And, and we can do that in various outward ways. I mean, obviously, somebody who is teaching, whether it's a Bible study or playing music, that might be a very outward way of serving. But let me tell you, the communion elements just didn't show up today. They just didn't appear on this table Somebody came, Alex, and got them and put them out there for you. The bulletin in your hands, it just didn't print itself. Jeannie came down and printed them for you. The prayer and praise report that comes through your email every week, it doesn't supernaturally, well, it doesn't miraculously form itself, and go out through the interwebs into your email box. Somebody, Simone, puts it together every week and sends it out to you. These may not be spectacular, but they are done for you. They are done to build up the body of Christ. We could go on and on and on. Some things are kind of behind the scenes. Some things are really out there and, and we see them. Sometimes I show up and the grass has been mowed. God has gifted people to bring about his purposes. Your gift, then, understand, is to serve somebody else. It's not surprising that under a variety of service, Paul writes, but the same Lord. We should not be surprised that Jesus is associated with serving. And there are a variety of activities, um, maybe better understood as energizings. God empowers people uniquely. People perform the service, but it is God who empowers the effects. And it is the same God. Variety of gifts, same spirit. Variety of service, same Lord. Variety of activities, same God, who empowers them all to everyone. 
Gifts, services, activities are all given because God empowers them in all. God has gifted you to strengthen, to unify, and to edify his church. And so back to our thesis statement. Gifts are given to each one. Verse 7, every believer is supernaturally enabled. The Spirit is working in each one, but the Spirit is working differently in each one. Paul has leveled the playing field, and he has presented truth to destroy the Corinthian hierarchy. You think you're something? Do you realize that whatever you have, God has given it to you to serve his body, not for you to exalt yourself? So, with that then, Paul goes on and he gives this rather lengthy, somewhat lengthy gift list. For, and he talks about a variety of different, different gifts. Just a, a quick overview before we look very, very quickly at these spiritual gifts that Paul highlights. The first thing we want to note is that this list is a sampling. It is not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. The reason I say that is because there are at least two other lists of spiritual gifts, uh, three other lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, and none of them are the same. So that tells me that the list here is not exhaustive. But it is probably the list that most was of most or greatest interest to the Corinthians. That's why Paul gives them. Not because they're the only ones or the best ones or anything. This was the list then that Paul, um, that Paul knew his listeners were the most concerned or interested in. So he deals with those. So it's not an exhaustive list. It is just a sampling. And the first ones listed are an utterance to, so, to each is given, for to one is given the spirit of utterance of wisdom and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same spirit. I'll be honest, we don't know exactly what that is. It's perhaps purposely vague. I know it's been understood in, I think, some rather odd ways. But if I use the Bible to understand the Bible and specifically look at what Paul says about these things, perhaps we can get close to what Paul's talking about. Wisdom and knowledge are closely related to the message of the apostles. We see this listed in 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 7, 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 16, and 2 Corinthians eleven six, where wisdom and knowledge are closely related to the message that came through the apostles. So, I would say that this is God-given wisdom into the mysterious workings of, of God in and through Jesus Christ. Or, knowledge is likely spirit-given insight into the mysteries of God associated with the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the opposite of the paganism that, was, that infected the Corinthians. They were all into the secret knowledge. Nobody really knows. But if you pay me enough... I'll reveal to you the secrets of God. This is people speaking of and revealing the mysteries of the triune God in Jesus Christ. This, these are people who are speaking of the knowledge of God and his workings in the world. I know we have people all the time nowadays saying, hey, I got a word of knowledge, and they say some real weird ethereal, I got some. Pat Robertson would say that like every week on this show. I got a word of knowledge. 
I don't think that's it. I think it is a person who is speaking and unveiling the mysteries and the knowledge of God, the wisdom and the knowledge of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. We also see there's a gift of faith. Now, here's the interesting thing. To one person, another person is given a measure of faith. Now, this can't be saving faith because every Christian has saving faith. It has to be some other kind of faith. A a special endowment beyond saving faith. We might refer to it as mountain-moving faith. There is this supernatural confidence providing a person with divine certainty that God is about to act in word or in deed. I've met people who have this kind of faith. They believe God. There's probably a fine line between faith and presumption. Not just saying, declaring something and saying, well, I just believe it's going to happen. But it is the ability that, that God, to believe that God is going to move or speak or act in ways that we would be astounded. And you've met these people. And you're like going, how do they believe that? Perhaps it's just people who actually believe that God is going to do what God said he's going to do. That he's actually going to act in the way that God that is consistent with the divine nature of God. Yeah, I just think that God's going to be God. And I believe that. Yeah, but not in this situation. Our situation's dire. <laughs> it's really bad. And this person with faith is like, yeah, so God will be even greater and bigger. It's amazing. They actually believe it. The supernatural. This, uh, and, and perhaps this gift, and I don't know if I'd die on this hill, but perhaps this gift stands before the gifts of healing and miracles. Because it's the person who can believe that God is actually going to do things like heal people and do miracles. Maybe that's why Paul put it where he put it. Like I said, I'm not going to make my point or make my stand on that, but I do find that compelling. And to some, we're given gifts of healing. Now, I want you to pause for a moment and just notice the plural. I think that's key. Gifts, plural, of healings, plural. And I think the best way to understand that is that at various times, individuals become conduits by which God brings healing. I'll tell a story, and some of you have heard this story before, but bear with me if you haven't. It's a good story if if you have heard it. Don't tune out yet. I had a professor, he's my missions professor, um, when I was at Gateways, or uh, back then, Golden Gate. And, you know, he was a good Southern Baptist cessationist, didn't believe in the miraculous gifts continuing today. And he went to some, I don't know, Eastern European country. He says, I get off the plane, we travel by car, I don't know, a couple of hours, a few hours, and I get out into this village and the, the leader of the village comes up and says, we're so glad you're here. All the sick people are in the tent. They're waiting for you. He's like, I thought I was going to preach a revival. I got my sermon notes and everything. And so he says, well, I don't know what else to do. So I went in and started praying for people. And for the next three days, men and women and children were healed of their diseases and their sicknesses. He's going, I don't even 
gets on the plane, flies home, gets, gets a cold and can't even heal himself. Never happened, never continued after that. But he was just saying, don't ask me what happened. I don't know. But God was gracious to those people and he confounded me. At various times, and, and we, we have prayed for, for healings here at the church, and sometimes people are, but people have been healed. That God uses men and women as conduits of his healing power. I think everybody in this church would agree that God heals people. When we pray for healing, we're not praying, well, let's just pray for healing. We don't believe it, but... No, we really believe that God can, through... Men and women as a conduit of his power can bring healing. Now, a quick caution, and that is, I don't think that if we were to pray for somebody today and they were to be healed, that that healing or that, that event should not be institutionalized. This granted gift, this granted charisma to heal another does not suggest that a person should presume that they always can heal and thus develop a healing ministry. In other words, when we look at the book of Acts and we see Peter and John, they heal a lame man. What you don't see is they started a healing ministry after that. Paul in Lystra healed a man. And in Malta, he healed a man. We also see Paul doing healings in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 and 12, chapter 20, verses 7 through 11. But Paul does not consider himself a healer and in fact experienced times when he could not heal. Paul understands that God heals and he heals through conduit, human conduits. But I don't think Paul would say, yeah, I'm a healer. But God does heal. God also works miracles. We pray for miracles all the time. That is God's ability to do mighty deeds. God is in the habit of doing mighty things. And so we certainly, I mean, again, we don't pray for miracles thinking, yeah, well... This doesn't happen. God raises the dead. Or yeah, God healed in times past. Or God heal or God does miracles in other countries. Well, he did heal in times past, and he does do miracles in other countries. But I don't think our borders limit God. Another caution here. Just to note, because we're going to get to discerning, but I think this is an area also where we need some discernment because in 2 Thessalonians 2.9, there is a, I believe, a warning, or at least an implicit warning to, um, to discern the works of God from the works of Satan. Because Paul indicates that in the last time there will be miraculous things being done, but they are not from God. But God does miracles, and he uses human beings like you and me to bring about miracles. Another person has a gift of prophecy. We'll spend a little bit more time on this, especially when we get to 
chapter 14. But let me just make a quick definition, and then when we get to chapter 14, we'll unpack it. Um, And I'm just going to broadly define prophecy as a declaration of God's will to his people. A declaration of God's will to his people. It does not have to include future events. In other words, prophecy is, does not, is not limited to, mm, I see something happening two years from now, and this is what, or God's going to do this in your life. I guess prophecy can include um, having an idea about future events. I just don't think it's the bulk of prophetic utterances. Read the prophets. Read Isaiah, read Ezekiel, read Daniel, even though the Hebrew Daniel is not considered a prophet. Read the minor prophets. There was some talking about what would happen in the future, but generally, generally, it was a declaration of God's will to his people, namely, return from your sinful ways. Repent and call upon me, and I will restore you. And if you don't, I will judge you. A declaration of God's will. You have sinned against a holy God, now return. So prophecy, a broad definition, a declaration of God's will to his people. The discerning of spirits. I think this is, is, is well placed. I believe it relates to prophecy as the message of the prophets is to be judged. And I gave you a whole list of scriptures in your sermon notes, so I just won't read them all. But prophecy is or the message of a prophet is to be discerned and judged, and the discerning of spirits is given, probably for a wide range of reasons, but especially given what we're going to see in chapter 14 and where it's listed here, is that it will judge those who claim to be declaring God's will to his people. And finally, well, not quite finally, somewhat finally, tongues. It's interesting because Paul considers this a part of the natural Corinthian experience. Though, he does not say that it is the natural experience of all Corinthians. So tongues seem to be a natural part of the Corinthian experience, but he's also very clear, not all of y'all experience this. So not everybody, and we'll see this next week, and we'll see it. Not everybody speaks in tongues. I grew, I was, I guess, discipled in a church that said everybody needs to speak in tongues. Um, And they even taught classes on how to speak in tongues. Because everybody's supposed to speak in tongues. Now it seems like everybody's supposed to heal and do miracles. And there are schools of the supernatural where you can go and learn how to heal and do miracles. They are false and they are heretical. Do not go. Not because God doesn't do miracles or God doesn't heal. God just, he will gift you with that. It is his grace, not your ability to learn whatever it is. I I don't know what you learn. I will also make note in the area of tongues that it is a known language because I think the word language is the most most natural understanding of the Greek word glossa. Glossa meaning tongue or language. 
We see this, the very first time we see this is in the book of Acts, chapter 2, where men and women spoke in unlearned languages that would call people to glorify God. They were glorifying God in the language of the Greeks and the Parthians and the, the Bithynians and folks from all over. And the most natural understanding of the Greek word glossa is a language. So, for lack of better term and not to be demeaning in, in any ways, it is not Babel. It is not, in fact, Pentecost was the reversal of Babel. I won't go into that, but Babel, tongues were confused. Pentecost, tongues were united to glorify God. And then finally, interpretation of the tongues, which was a complementary gift to the tongues so that people might be edified. In other words, I'm hearing them speak in my language glorifying God, but nobody else seems to know, so this is for the common good. Everybody needs to be hearing how God is being glorified, so let me interpret so that y'all might say amen and y'all might shout hallelujah to what this person is speaking in this unlearned language. And we all can rejoice. Because remember, it's for the common good. It's not for you. It's for the common good. All right, so that's Paul's gift list. I'm going to um, then, verse 11 is kind of the summary, and it'll be my conclusion. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually just as he wills. So unity and diversity. The Spirit of God is sovereign in distributing in the distributing of gifts. In other words, there are no schools. There are no lessons. I, I think we can refine them by using them. But the Spirit of God is sovereign in distributing the gifts. He decides, just as, and we're going to see this um, um, as we go along, just as he wills, just as he wills, just as he wills, just as he wills, just as the Spirit wills, so he gave these gifts, just as he wills. It is, so here we see the personhood of the Holy Spirit willing to bring, to, to enable you in a particular way to build up the church. Praise goes to the Spirit for the giving of gifts. In other words, what do you have that you have not received? Also, nobody has all the gifts. Possession of a particular gift does not indicate one's level of spirituality. If you say, I seem to have this great ability, you know, I pray and great and mighty things happen. It is, your level of spirituality is not greater than a person laying out the communion elements. It might be more spectacular, but it is not a mark of spirituality. Fourth, the Spirit works in every Christian in the congregation. So let me repeat that. The Spirit works in every Christian in the, co- in the congregation I won't ask you to raise your hand, but are you a Christian today? 
then the Spirit works in you in some way for this con- if this is your home church, for this congregation. And finally, the Spirit ensures that there's a diversity of gifts. So we're not all doing the same thing. I always I use the example, uh, I used to play ice hockey, but it probably works pretty well with kids' soccer. But it was really cute to watch little kids play ice hockey because the puck's here, and they're all right there. And they go like this. And it's probably the same with soccer. Wherever the ball is, that's where all the kids are. You watch adult soccer, and they're all spread out. Toddler ice hockey is cute. Utterly ineffective. Toddler soccer is fun to watch. Bad soccer. All of us doing the same thing might be cute, but it will not make progress. It will not help us. We, God will spread us out so that we're all doing different things. Sometimes we're waiting for the puck or the ball to come to us. Sometimes we have it, and sometimes we're on the bench cheering on everybody else. But God has gifted us to do a task. All of us have been given that. Father, we thank you this day that you have been so gracious to us, that you are a gift-giving God. You, you didn't stop with the gift of salvation. That is sufficient. We would all rejoice saying that is enough. But God says, no, let me keep pouring out gifts upon my sons and my daughters. Lord, what a privilege it is to be the recipients of the things that you've given to us. So Lord, we, we pray, Father God, that we are not sure where we're supposed to serve, that you would reveal that to us. If we know where we're supposed to serve, that we would do it. And do it with boldness and confidence. And trust you. So God, have mercy upon us this day and help us to love you more this week. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.